Well, a very good morning to you. If you're in the room, if you're online, it's great to be with you. Welcome to church. We're going to jump straight in. Emily's going to come up and do our reading for today. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, another clap. Love that. There's just life, isn't there? So if you have a Bible, it's going to be on the screens, but if you have a Bible, Revelation 2, 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the teaching of food sac- or, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immortality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. (laughs) Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, man. You thought last week was intense. If you haven't been to church in a while and this is your first time back, you've chosen a great week to come back. It's a rich passage. And and we're just going to go for it. This is a letter to the church in Thyatira, incredibly challenging. Like, just reading that once over, incredibly challenging and yet incredibly rich and fruitful if we engage with it. So I'm going to pray again. I think we just need as much prayer as we can get this morning. So Holy Spirit, we invite your presence into this place. Lord, we thank you for your scripture, even when it tests us, even when it challenges us. Lord, we know that it brings life We know that it shines a light onto parts of us that we'd rather not see and yet know that need that light so much. So Holy Spirit, would you come dwell with us this morning? Amen. Amen. So we're just going to get on the same page before we jump into this. We're in the book of Revelation. That's where we are in this series. And it's perfectly described, the book of Revelation, from those first words in it, the revelation from Jesus Christ. It is a vision. It is a revealing. It is an unveiling. And I want to give you an analogy for what's going on in this book. A lot of my family are from South Africa, so we go to Cape Town quite a lot. Obviously not in the last year. Yep, lovely. We've got some South Africans in the house. The thing about Cape Town, there is a beautiful place called Table Mountain. Most of us will have heard of it. And it's got a flat top. And when you go to the top of Table Mountain, you can be there on a beautiful day, and it is incredible. It is stunning. You can see for miles. It is absolutely beautiful. And then out of nowhere, 
a cloud can come. They call it the tablecloth. A little microclimate will come and cover that place, and you cannot see heads or tails. You cannot see anything. You can't see six feet in front of you. And then out of nowhere, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, an hour later, it will just lift. And suddenly, you're in a completely different place. It is stunning again. It is absolutely beautiful. You can be fumbling your way through the fog. And then suddenly, you can see where you are and what is going on. And I think Revelation is a little bit like this. It is an absolute wrestle. It is a fumbling through the fog. But when the fog lifts, when we do that work, when we do that wrestle, we see this beautiful vista. We see what God is doing. We see what God is saying. And it is absolutely stunning. But we have to do some work to get there. And it's not just an intellectual wrestle, but it's a spiritual wrestle. It's an emotional wrestle. It's a wrestle for the very way that we live our lives. But ultimately... When we help each other lift this fog and what is going on in Revelation, it reveals the person of Jesus Christ. That is what this book is all about. It reveals this vision, this compelling vision for how we should live our lives full and free of devotion to the person of Jesus. Daryl Johnson, who we've referenced a whole bunch of times in this series, he says this at the beginning of his book. He says, I read the Revelation, i.e. this book, not to get more information but to revive my imagination. That is what is going on in this book. And I don't know about you, but I want to be transformed more into the likeness of the person I was created to be. I want my imagination for that life to be revived. And it's really been on my mind as stuff has started open, opening up again, right, with COVID. Because there's so much talk of a new normal. And I heard this brilliant quote this week. He said, let's make sure that the new normal is more than just a vaccinated version of the old normal. That is what the new normal should be. It should have transformed us this last year. That is what we're being invited into, something transformative, something deeper, something richer. And these letters that we're reading, they should recapture our hearts for Jesus. They should revive our imagination. So it's a revelation from Jesus Christ, but it is also a particular revelation for a church, the church in Thyatira. And some background, it was by far the smallest of the seven churches um, and cities that we um, are reading about in this series. It wasn't particularly famous or influential. It was a military outpost, and it was protecting some of the other more strategic cities in the area. So for the geographers out there, here's some context. We've got Patmos over here. Yeah, you're feeling good about that, aren't you? Thanks, guys. Really needed that. Very much so. So we've got Patmos. This is where it says in chapter 1 that John is writing this. He receives this vision. He's in the spirit and he's told, just write down everything that you see. And these are the letters that come as a result of it. And we're working our way up through here. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. And then we're coming down here. And, um, you know, it's, it's good, isn't it? And we're about halfway through, right? So we're now at Thyatira. And here's the thing, just a, a, little, um, a little kind of uh, fun fact. It was actually in, in West Philadelphia that the church was born and raised. And um, on the playgrounds where it spent most of its days, chilling out, Max and relaxing on call, and shooting some b-ball outside of school, when a couple of guys, they were up to no good, started prophesying in the neighborhood. They got in lots of little fights, and Pergamum got scared and said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Smyrna. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You know, when, it, when it's a tough passage, sometimes you just need humor, don't you? And that's what we've got this morning. So that's Asia Minor. It was an incredibly small city, but it had a huge number 
of labor guilds. We've, we've met these labor guilds before. They're essentially groups of professions. They had the commitment of a labor union. They had the community of a club. Your livelihood, your economic future, everything about your social standing and your future depended on these guilds. So in worldly terms, it was pretty inconsequential. And yet, it was a city that Jesus cares about passionately, passionately. And we're going to get more on Thyatira as we go through the text. It's the longest and most challenging uh, of these letters. And we're going to go through it together and draw out some of what's going on. So are we ready? Okay. So let's start again. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We're going to come back to that. I know your deeds. So immediately, like the other letters that we have covered, we, uh, Jesus is pointing at the things where there is incredible stuff happening. He says, yes, well done. Keep going. I love this about you. They're a community of love. Not just love, but of agape love, the highest form of love, of unconditional, sacrificial love, love that comes from God. They're a community of faith, a functioning community of real faith. They have service towards each other, service towards those of real need. They have perseverance. Well done, guys. You've got perseverance, the constant and continual threat to the lives that we've read about in some of these other letters, like in Smyrna. They've held on with perseverance, and they're doing more than they did at first. They're growing. They're growing. They're taking ground. It's a great scorecard so far. They're doing phenomenally well. If it was a competition, it's not a competition. If it was a competition, I'd make it a competition. If I was leading one of these seven churches, Thyatira are doing phenomenally well. But we know the pattern by now. This is this revelation from Jesus where he commends, where there is real life, real life, and yet he challenges where there are real problems, and there are some real problems in Thyatira, problems that make this letter incredibly challenging, challenging for the church then, but as we know by now, it should be challenging for us in the church now. It should be immensely uncomfortable. I found last week immensely uncomfortable. I found this week preparing for this immensely uncomfortable, but we find it each and every week, and we should wrestle with it. We should engage with it, because here's the risk, as always is that we end up creating God in the image of ourselves. It is so tempting. It would be so much more straightforward. Sky Jathani, he writes this brilliant book called The Divine Commodity, and he says this, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than a messy relationship with real people. I relate to that one. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up and entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. Do you want that? Honestly, I do. (laughs) Honestly, I do. And yet time and time Again, we see and know that we are taken to places that we'd rather not go in order that we might experience life that we didn't know we needed. That is where we are being led in this letter this morning. And what we see is a revelation about their culture, a revelation about what is going on in their culture, principally about the culture of the church 
and of the city, but also about the culture of their hearts, the culture of what's going on inside of them. So back up to the start. These are the words of the Son of God. I promise we get back up here. In Thyatira, they, um, these are the words to the Son of God. And in Thyatira, they worshipped Apollo. Okay, He was the sun god. He was the son of Zeus, who was seen as like the ultimate god of all the gods. And it is the only place in these letters where Jesus is explicitly named as the son of God. It's as if he's saying, no, 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 no. There, there are no other sons of God. I am the son of God. I am the one son of God. It's not Apollo. It's me, whose eyes are like blazing fire. He can see everything. There is nowhere that you can go where he cannot see, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze, very specifically, was the speciality industry of Thyatira. That is what they made, a cultural reference to the very being of what the city was about. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance. It was a tough, hard-working city. Its industry was disproportionately big for the size of the city. People were working phenomenally hard, and Jesus can see it. He can see this community. He knows it. He cares about it. He can pick up on specific details through this vision about what this community is about, what this community does, how it acts, the kinds of things they are doing. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, I'm going to pause here. We're going to come back into to find a kind of biblical reference, the obvious biblical reference of Jezebel from the Old Testament. But what we have to know at this point is there is someone in this community in Thyatira, a self-appointed prophet, they weren't given that title, they self-appointed themselves as a prophet, incredibly strong personality who puts real fear into everyone in this community. And she was teaching the church away from the teaching of Jesus. That was what she was there to do. That's what she found her mission as being. You're misleading my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And Pete touched on this last week. It's probably something to do with the, the guild parties, the festivals that they'd be involved in, the kind of activities that would happen when you were in those places. Crucially, she was unrepentant, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Brutal. Now, the language there, the bed of suffering, it was a client. It was literally the beds that they would have had in those parties. So she is being cast off to those places where she, she's, she's being, um, where, where she has those desires. She's being given over to her own desires and all of those who will go with her. There are so many cultural references that are littered through this that would have got the attention of the church in Thyatira. He knows us. He cares about us. He knows exactly what's going on. It's an unveiling of what is happening in this place. It is a wake-up call. Can you see what is happening around you? It is a naming of what they've fallen into. But there's a layer underneath that, which is that there's an unveiling also happening through Scripture. That constantly throughout this, um, passages of Scripture are being littered throughout it. We have to dig a little bit, but the, the church would have known these Hebrew Scriptures. They, they, they give such richness to what Jesus is calling them out on. So we're going to go back up to the top. Some of you are wondering, are we ever going to get past the first three or four verses? I promise you we will. These are the words of the Son of God, obvious reference. Eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. References back to Daniel. If you know your Old Testament prophets, Daniel was in this fiery furnace. He was set apart by prayer. He was set apart by the things that he ate, by the diet that he had, by the friends that he kept. And it's, if, it's as if he's saying, Jesus, I am a firm foundation. 
I am trustworthy. I can withstand the fire. That is me. I am set apart. I am unique. I am the one that you can rely upon. I am the authentic Christ, the overcomer, the true God. It is me. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. So a clear reference, right, to Jezebel from 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the wife of a weak and feeble king, Ahab, the power behind the throne, pulling all of these strings. She was the most wicked and corrupt queen in Israel's history, so much so that even referencing Jezebel here, because that was almost certainly not her name, because that would be a crazy name to name anyone in this culture, they're like, he didn't just say Jezebel. She's, she's really nasty. She's a nasty piece of work. I cannot believe he's referenced Jezebel. It would have been awful. She had a manipulating and controlling spirit. She was decisive. She was ruthless. She was aggressive. But if we go back to the story of Jezebel in 1 Kings 16, it's really King Ahab where it gets really sad, where it gets really, really sad. And I want to read it for you. It says this in 1 Kings 16, 30 onwards. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is a relationship. It's a relationship between Yahweh, the God. It is a relationship between him and Israel, his people. And it's a relationship marked out by moments of fidelity, of covenant, of incredible relationship, but also moments of adultery, of infidelity. That's what's referenced later in this letter. And here's what's so sad. When you read that account from 1 Kings, here for the church in Thyatira again, all throughout Scripture, even in the church today, the people of God are continually being seduced, being tempted away from God sold a vision of where life might be found other than in his presence, other than being wholly and completely devoted to him. But it ultimately always leads to death and destruction. That is the road that they are being led down. Two weeks ago, I was, this isn't a story about death and destruction, I was leading the 6.30 here. Now, it was a tight turnaround because at 9 p.m., it was Line of Duty, and it was the finale of Line of Duty. I don't know if we have any Line of Duty fans in the house. I'm going to desperately try and not spoil the ending completely. I will a little, a little bit, but I won't completely. Here's the problem. I said at the beginning of that service, um, you know, I, my one goal isn't really the presence of God today. It's to make sure I get home for 9 p.m. because it's really important. And the thing is, God has a sense of humor because it went on and on and on, and God was speaking. We had loads of words. Ministry kicked off. It was absolutely stunning. Honestly, it was beautiful. But I missed the first few minutes of Line of Duty, and that was gutting. Here's the thing about the finale of Line of Duty. Hands up if you watched it, just out of interest. Okay, this is going to be a tough anecdote. So here's the thing about the end of Line of Duty. Line of Duty is a brilliant program about institutional corruption in the police. So all of these six series are about trying to highlight, trying to expose where institutional corruption was taking place. And in this finale, we were going to find out who the one person was who was pulling all of the strings, who has been sorting all of this out. And you may have read in the news, it was incredibly disappointing. Incredibly disappointing. Because what we found out was there wasn't one person pulling the strings. 
It was a culture that allowed institutional corruption to take place. It was weak leaders at every single part of the organization. It was weak managers, people who didn't know, didn't take responsibility for the things that were put in their hands. And for the church in Thyatira, that is exactly what is going on. Because you could think, you could primarily read this letter and think that there's a condemnation of this prophetess who's causing so much destruction. And in many ways, that is what this letter is. But the key words are, you tolerate. You tolerate this woman. You, the people of God. You who know that this isn't right. Why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep doing it? Why do you let it fester? Why do you get involved? King Ahab, why don't you take some leadership as the king of Israel? This is on you. Why don't you stand up to this evil? Family of KXC, why do you keep giving in to the world around you? Why do you get involved in that work culture? Why do you treat her the way that the world would treat her? Why do you spend your cash on that stuff? And before we distill down and, and draw out some themes, can you just geek out with me for one second? If you put all of this together, this, this, these letters, all of them, are written so beautifully, so beautifully. Not only is this vision from Jesus written by John speaking into this cultural setting, it's using biblical quotations in order that he might do that. Not only that, but he's choosing biblical quotations. There's a whole other layer we could go to, which, you know, again, if we had more time, I really want to go there because I love the geeking out of this stuff, but it would be really a waste of everyone's time. Where, where he's choosing biblical quotations that are relevant to the cultural challenges of the day. If you slow down long enough to get your head and your heart into this stuff, it is mind-blowing. And the reason I say that is because it's a continual reminder, not just in what he's saying, but how he's saying it, that Jesus cares deeply. He cares so much about his church. He cares so much about his people. He knows about the pain and the seduction of the world. And yet, he is continually calling us back. He is continually calling his church back into faithfulness with him. So to try and summarize what we're seeing in this church in Thyatira, they have a theology problem, they have a morality problem, and they have a toleration problem. And those are all linked to one another, right? They have a theology problem. The teaching of this prophet in their midst, it was attractive. It was seductive. You could do what you wanted and get away with it. God wouldn't see it, or he wouldn't care if you did it. Why would he care? And there's a couple of reasons for that. She was teaching a separation of spirit and flesh, some Gnostic teaching, where the goal was to keep your spirit pure. But what you did with your body, that was your choice. You could do whatever you wanted. And we know we're holistic beings. We know that those things can never be separated. When we choose to do things with our bodies, it has an impact. It has a legacy for good and for, for pain. She was also teaching a false view of grace, the most wonderful and beautiful gift, but she was totally abusing it. You can do whatever you want because grace is there. But here's the thing. Grace is free, but it's extraordinarily valuable. It is free and it is available, but it cost Jesus his life. Grace is costly stuff. It will always meet us where we are. Always. No one's excluded from grace, but it will never leave us there. 
it will always transform us more into the likeness of who we were created to be. That is the beauty of grace. It doesn't just accept us for who we were and leave us there. It takes us on a journey. And she was teaching the complete opposite of that. You do what you want. You do what you want. God won't mind. There was a morality problem. For the people of Thyatira, they had to be in a guild, right, for social connection and community. But, but their problem was their lives looked identical to everyone else's. To the surrounding culture, it looked exactly the same. They couldn't be distinctive in any way, shape, or form. You couldn't recognize the church from the surrounding culture. Here's the problem. When the church looks like the world, it is indistinguishable. You just can't see it. When the church acts like the world, it's an impotent church. It has no power anymore. It has no authority. And when the church plays with the world, it's an unfaithful church. It's an unfaithful church. And that is ultimately what this letter is about. It's about a God who is a faithful lover, who is met time and time again by an unfaithful church. They have a theology problem. They have a morality problem, but they have a toleration problem. They've allowed these things, they've allowed these ways of living, these different theologies being taught, different personalities and characters rising up to just grow and suck the power out from the church. A few weeks ago, Pete kicked us off with this letter to the Ephesians, a beautiful letter, challenging again in so many ways. And they were doing so many good things. They had the spiritual authority and the power, but they had lost their first love. In many ways, Thyatira was like the opposite of this. They, they had agape love, unconditional, sacrificial love, but they had lost their power. Their authority had been sucked away as they gave themselves into what they were being seduced into. Ultimately, in this letter, we encounter a revelation of a jealous lover. That is who God is being portrayed as. It is what he is being positioned as. It is the God that we believe in. He is a jealous lover. Not jealous in a worldly sense of possessive or out of fear or needing to hold on to what we have because otherwise, oh my goodness, what's that going to make me and what's going on in terms of my life? But jealous because he's, he wants his church to step up to the call that's being named for them, to be blameless and pure. A God who says, just be faithful to me. Be faithful to me. Hold fast to my teaching, to my words of life. The culture around you will think you are mad. They will think you are mad, but take courage because I've overcome the world. That is the message from this God. We don't need to be more faithful to Jesus than that. We don't have to argue and debate our way into it, but we absolutely can't be any less faithful than that. We're being called into faithfulness. Much has been written about the church here in the UK over this last year. been really fascinating and some real insight. And another one of these articles that um, pinged up for me was in December, back in December in The Spectator. And it really struck me. And it's talking on this very topic of the church in relation to the surrounding culture. And it concluded with this. It said, Christianity has stood the test of time, but a church that seeks to appease the zeitgeist of the time rather than stick to its principles will not. William Ralph Ing said, whoever marries the spirit of this age will be widowed in the next. Christian denominations around the world are in grave danger of falling into this trap. 
This is language from, from the surrounding culture, confused as to why the church wouldn't be true to itself. Why would the church not be true to its call? Why would it be seduced away from its faithful and jealous lover? And what's the promise if we get this right? To the one who's victorious and does my will, to the end I will give authority over the nations. And then a, a quote from Psalm 2. Um, and then it goes on, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We will be co-heirs with Jesus. Just as he has received authority, we will receive that authority. But here's the thing. To rule with Jesus in the future, you have to be faithful to him in the present. That is what is being challenged of this church in Thyatira. And I honestly believe that is what we're being challenged on right now in our age. Not just here at KXC, as in the church. Are we going to be faithful to our lover? Are we going to be faithful to a God who has been only faithful to us? That is all he has been. And here's the thing. It's easy to read this like a, a theoretical exercise. But what ended up happening to the church in Thyatira, it's obviously not in this letter, it was well after it was written, was this church died. This church died because it gave into another fad, into Montanism. It was a different teaching to what they had received from the apostles, they, what they had received from Jesus. And this church died. That is the warning. It's hard to know how else to teach this, by the way. That is the warning to the church. Be faithful. Be faithful. That is the call on you. That is the call on the church is to be faithful to a lover. And I want to finish up with this. What does this actually mean? What does it mean for us? How do we be faithful? What does it look like for us to take that shape? What does it look like for us to step up and be the church that we were called to be? And there are any number of things which we're preaching week in, week out, right? Not just in this series, but in every single week that we're doing church. But having just sat with it and asked God specifically for us, a community at KXC right now, what is it that we should be stepping into? I think there are two things, holiness and family, Holiness and family, holiness, a set-apartness, a uniqueness in the way that we live our, li our lives, that we wouldn't be seduced by the spirit of the age, that we wouldn't slip into worldliness. Now, don't mishear this. I'm not saying retreat from the world. I'm not saying just build a wall around you and make sure that you're completely blameless and pure and everything will be good. No, no, no. We're called to the world, but we're called to be distinctive. We're called to be a prophetic edge to the surrounding culture, to be present but to be different, that we wouldn't be preoccupied by the things of this temporal life, that we wouldn't just go along. Those words, go along. Are we going along with culture or are we offering something different? Not just communally, not in this place, but in our lives. Are we offering something different? Would we align ourselves by faith to the faithfulness of our faithful lover? And, and that's played out in so many arenas of our lives. But the obvious ones, it's getting heavier, guys. It's not, it's not getting lighter, it's getting heavier, are these. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm really skimming on this stuff, okay? You could do entire talks, you could do series, you could do books on all of these things. But just some of the places where I think it's worth pausing, looking at your life and saying, does this reflect what is being called of me? Does this reflect what is being asked of me as a disciple of Jesus? The way that we spend our money. The way that we use our resources, where we spend our money. Sex, where we point our sexual desires. The way that we do our relationships. Power, the, the way that we see ourselves in relation to others. Do we put ourselves above people? Do we actually unnecessarily put ourselves below people? 
How do we see ourselves in relation to power? But then I think particular to this letter in our workplace, because the thing about Thyatira, you had to be in a guild. If you weren't in a guild, you couldn't start a business. You, you'd, get, you'd have to pay double taxes. These are the kind of um, strings that came with the workplace for them in Thyatira. What strings come with progression in your workplace? Honest question. What are the strings that come as you get higher in your workplace? What does radical holiness look like in your industry? In an industry where alcohol is rife, where you have to, where having certain perspectives on life is just completely disallowed, where casual racism is celebrated, where sexism is normalized. What does a radical life of holiness look like? But not only holiness, but family. So if we go back to King Ahab from 1 Kings, or in the church of Thyatira, or indeed in the finale of Line of Duty, the community of the church, the family of the church, has to be robust enough to call out the best in each other. We have to be able to do that. If we can't do that, we are not authentic, real, deep family. And at times, family also means we have to know how to best confront each other to call out something better, to call out the best by, by also calling out where we see that we're being robbed of life. And here's the thing. If you find confrontation easy, which my guess is, is not very many of us, this next bit probably isn't for you. In fact, you might just need to restrain yourself a little bit better and not call out and not go for confrontation. But for many reasons, a lot of us find confrontation incredibly difficult. I want to name just a few of them. We lack integrity in our own lives. Who am I? Gosh, who am I to call out something in someone else when I've got stuff messed up in my own life? This is one for me, right? A lack of knowledge, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to help you with that. A lack of time, that's messy. Man, that's going to take up an afternoon, maybe even more than that. That's going to be a weekly coffee in the diary. That's, That's pretty intense. I'm not really up for that. Here's the thing. All of these things are ultimately a lack of love. They're a lack of love. We care more about how we're seen, how we come across, how we're perceived, than about the well-being of the person in front of you, of the person to your left and to your right, sat right here, right now. Authentic family is being able to draw out the best by also naming some of where we can see that people are being robbed. They're being robbed of life. All of this, this goes without saying, well, maybe it doesn't, which is why I'll say it is in the context of relationship, right? It's full of genuine grace. It's not self-righteous. It's not, I'm better than you. Go back to the power thing. It is not, I'm better than you. Or that I've been somewhere that I can lead you as well. It is out of grace. And it should feel costly to go on that journey. It shouldn't be easy. You shouldn't enjoy it. It should be costly because it's sacrificial. And I'm sure there are many people in this room who have been hurt by those kinds of conversations and been on the receiving end of it. And I'm so sorry, either in this church or in a different one. We get this stuff wrong all the time, but because we sometimes get it wrong, we decide that we'll never do it. And that is settling for something less of what we're being called into. We've got to get this stuff right. So just going back to what Jesus celebrates right at the start of this letter, even with the struggles that we know are to come, he celebrates their love. This is what family looks like, love, genuine love of faith, white-hot faith of service to one another and to the surrounding culture, of perseverance. Keep going. You've got this. Don't let go. 
of doing more than at first, of growth. We should see change in our lives. That's what family also is, is we see that things are getting better. Sometimes they get worse, but most of the time, are they getting better? Are we seeing transformation? Family is the most beautiful, profound gift that we've been given, but it's costly. It takes work. It takes humility. It takes vulnerability. But I think that's the journey that we're on. I just want to finish with this story. I have a group of guy friends who, um, when we left university and we, we started going to work, into the workplace, there was a whole group of us that we really, you know, did that journey together. Amazing group of guys, and we'd catch up with each other every, you know, couple of months. We'd go out for dinner all the time. We did it for a number of years. We still do it now. Um, we haven't fallen out. That's not the end of the story. Sad end. But here's the thing. Over that whole journey, you know, I'm sitting there like committed Christian. I want to be different. You know, I want to invite these guys into a community that is Jesus-centered. I want them to know who Jesus is. I want to evangelize. I want to do all this stuff. And even over, like, not just months, but years, I just didn't see anything happen, you know. You're inviting them to Alpha. You're trying to do all of this stuff. You're trying to invite them into something over there which looks really good. And I ended up asking a question, like, guys, I'm just going to level with you. Like, I really want to see you guys come to know Jesus. I really want to see it. He's my best friend, and I, I really wish that you guys had that relationship. What's stopping you? What's stopping you? And do you know what the honest answer was? And it was so painful, and it was at the beginning of a dinner rather than the end, which was, made it even worse. Your life doesn't look any different to mine. Your life doesn't look any different to mine. Why would I be in for something where you're the same as me? I'm enjoying my life. Why do I need to be part of something different? I don't need another add-on. I don't need something different from the way that I'm living my life right now. Unbelievably challenging. Incredibly painful. But started the journey of like, wow, that's convicting. Gosh, what's going on in my life that would make it not look any different to these guys? And so started a whole runway of trying to change things about my life. We are being pursued by a kind and caring and passionate God who longs for us to be the people of God, who are faithful, faithful to him. And I truly believe we're being invited into deeper levels of holiness, deeper family, deeper joy, deeper freedom. That's part of it, right? This isn't all heavy. There's, some good start. There's a good start to it. As we experience more of God's authority, more of his presence, as we step into it, as we align ourselves with it, that is what we are being called into, to be a faithful lover, to a faithful God.